0: My name is Jeremy, I'm one of the pastors here, and we are going to be completing a little mini-series we've been looking at in the life of Samson as part of a bigger uh, series looking at this idea of the Nazarite vow, this group of people uh, found in Scripture who are in some way dedicating themselves wholly to God. And we've been looking at the first of those Nazarites, this man called Samson, And we are looking at the the final episode in Samson's life. And when I read to you these verses, you might think, in a way, the message is simple Samson dies. Thank you very much. Move on. But actually, I want to suggest to you, as we look at the final moments of Samson's life together, that we are seeing a fundamental principle in Scripture. And that is experiencing God's strength in our weakness, experiencing God's strength. In our weakness. There's a profound paradox in the passage we're looking at today. We see Samson, this great warrior, this man of great strength, and yet we see him at his weakest. And in the midst of his weakness, we see God use him profoundly. So why don't you turn with me? Judges chapter 16. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll have seen Samson uh, was in this kind of sexual, romantic relationship of sorts with a woman called Delilah and in the midst of that relationship he denies himself. He kind of basically forsakes his calling as a Nazarite. He reveals to her that the secret of his power is in his Nazarite dedication and the fact that he's never had his hair cut and he allows her to cut his hair or to have his hair cut and he is overpowered by his Philistine enemies and they gouge out his eyes And we begin with that moment. So chapter 16, verse 21. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer great sacrifice to Dagon, their god. And to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravage of our, of our country, who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars. And Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I may lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord God, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords, uh, the rulers of the Philistines, and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. So he's brought down this great edifice, this temple dedicated to the Philistine god Dagon. And with that bringing down, he has led to his own death and the death of his Philistine enemies. And then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshetol in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He had judged Israel 20 years. Let me pray. Lord, as we open up your word, I pray that you would speak to us this evening. I pray that you would reveal yourself as we open up your words, so that we would see something of your glory and majesty. I pray also, Lord, that you would draw out from us, that you would restore a sense of dependence in this family. Lord, that you would make us a people who have such a deep sense of our own weakness and our dependence on you, that you are the source of strength, that we need for the Christian life. I pray, Lord, that you would come and strengthen us this evening. Help us to depend on you and help us to be those who are willing to be weak for the sake of your mission. Amen. So we have this profound turnaround in this man's life. Whether you're with us or not in the previous weeks, you probably know something of Samson, that he is this great, strong figure, a man who ripped a lion with his bare hands, the man who overpowered his attackers as they sought to uh, take hold of him a number of times, was able to overpower a series of uh, number of different attackers. Uh, At one point in one battle in the previous chapter, he kills a thousand Philistine warriors with a jawbone of a donkey. I'm not entirely sure how, but he is effectively unstoppable. He looks almost superhuman. And even though we know, as we've unpacked the book, that his strength depends on God, that it is God who is strengthening him for these tasks, there's a sense to which he doesn't have to ask. It feels almost effortless. The strength seems to come from within him. And yet there's a paradox because here we see this great strong warrior at his weakest. He's a shadow of his former self. I want you to imagine the scene as he's brought out before these Philistines. He is... Well, first of all, he appears like a slave. He is uh, shackled, wearing bronze shackles. He's wearing probably some sort of prison garb. Note he's had to, um, in the prison, he's had to mill grain. You think, what, what is that about? Well, actually, Dagon is the god of kind of agricultural fertility in the Philistines. So in some sense, while he's been in prison, he's almost been acting as a slave to Dagon. So he's been brought out, humiliated, having been forced to serve the Philistine god. And you can see something of the figure of humiliation he is, something of his how far he's fallen by their reaction. They bring him out and say, "Let's see him, so he can entertain us." This figure, who previously you can only imagine would have um, caused great fear in the Philistines, he was described as one who ravaged the nation. Now they stand there and whatever he does, they're laughing. He's a figure of hilarity because they're so they're delighted as the one who ravaged them and destroyed them is now just this puny man who's had his eyes gouged out, who's been forced as a slave, who has a pitiful appearance, who's been shaved. We see that his hair has grown back. But I'm sure it's not like the long flowing locks that you would have seen previously as he'd never cut his hair previously. A bit like a, he's a bit like a, a lion who's had his mane sheared in some ways. So in the midst of his profound weakness, the absolute paradox of this passage is this is the moment when he has the most profound impact. This is the moment when he fulfills his life's destiny. Note, he causes such destruction as he pulls down this Philistine temple and in fact uh, with it then thousands of Philistines are killed. You might think well, what is, what, is about, what is significant about that? You've got to remember his original mission. You've got to remember the context we find ourselves here. The Philistines have taken over Israel. They are occupying a land which God has intended for his people. They are the enemies of Israel and, and what's interesting is, we saw this as in previous weeks, that the people of Israel, particularly the tribe of Judah have just kind of allowed it. They've allowed the Philistines to come in and take over their land, to occupy them and suppress them, and perhaps in in doing so, we'll see this again and again in Israel's history through the Old Testament, they've perhaps intermarried and worshipped the false gods of the cultures who come in and take over their land. They have allowed this kind of, well, in a sense, like you see Samson, he's been sleeping with the enemy. In a sense, Israel are kind of sleeping with the enemy, and. Samson was raised up and go back to chapter 13 and the angel that told Samson's parents of his arrival said he is the one who has been raised up to begin to remove the Philistine oppression. He was raised up to remove the Philistines from oppressing the people of Israel and it is in this moment, his final moment, this what looks like a defeat is actually victory. You might call this victorious defeat. In that moment of defeat, He overpowers and destroys this great temple and with it, the lords of the Philistine culture, the leaders of the Philistines and thousands of Philistines, he achieves the destiny he was intended to achieve. In great weakness, we see God using him profoundly. And it's actually a fulfilment in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, describes a whole series of heroes of the faith found in the Old Testament. And at one point, it gives a list of a few heroes, including Samson, and it describes them as those who, who were made strong out of weakness. And this is describing, I think, this moment, that Samson, once strong, is made weak, and is then made strong again by God in this moment. But more than that, we see a change has taken place in Samson. Now, I don't know how you felt, if you've been with us in the previous weeks, but as we've looked at Samson's life, I have found myself increasingly resenting the man. I, am not, I don't know about you, he doesn't feel like a very attractive figure. He walks around kind of oozing pride, I think one of my favourite moments where you see his pride is after destroying the Philistines in uh, chapter 15, he makes up a song to describe his victory. And we don't know what the tune is, but in chapter 15, verse 16, he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey have I struck down a thousand men. And he just kind of, looks like a child. You know that way a little child might do something and then kind of be walking around, like celebrating their victory? It just looks immature. There's no reference to God. All the way through you see Samson's life. He makes a series of bad choices and he ignores any good counsel around him. He's dripping with pride. He is sexually incontinent. He is, quite frankly, an idiot. Surely you you have felt the same as we've looked through this book. And yet now, in this moment, we see a very different posture. He has been humbled. You can hear that in his prayer. He says, oh Lord, please remember me. And please strengthen me only this one once, O oh God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. He's pleading with God. Compare this with the only other prayer we've heard of him. In, in chapter 15, after he destroyed his enemies, he says to God, You've granted this salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? He's saying, basically, I'm thirsty, God. Where's my water? Like it's kind of, you just hear the entitlement in his prayer. And now it's quite the opposite. He's pleading with God. God, would you come? Would you come and and, and strengthen me again? He remembers all the times that God has strengthened him previously. He says, please remember me, in one sense, suggesting God has no reason to remember him. Like, in a sense, he knows he has done wrong. He calls him sovereign Lord. He recognizes it's him who has the power, who's really in charge here. This is the moment when he becomes or recommits himself as a true Nazarite again. Back in chapter 13, he was described as one who would be a Nazarite till the end of his life, till the very end of his days. And here we have him committing himself to the mission that God's called him to, to overthrow the Philistines as he does it with his death. And I want you to zero in on his prayer. And see the humility in this moment. See this prayer for strength, this crying out to God, this recognition of his weakness, and to see that this is a snapshot, an image, that tells us what the Christian life is, the posture of the Christian life. That we will come into the Christian life, and we will go on in the Christian life with the conviction that we experience God's strength in our weakness. Now, this idea, it feels kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? You think, well, well we've been hearing about this, this call to strength and to courage and to boldness. And you might think, well, really what God is looking for is strong people. I want to suggest to you, actually, what the Lord is looking for is people who know that they are weak, who acknowledge their own weakness, like we see in Samuel in this moment, and then run to the living God for the strength that he provides who walk with a posture of dependence, a recognition of their weakness and the strength that comes from the living God. And even, I want to show you, those who follow Christ are marked out by a willingness to become weak for the sake of the mission of God. This is a call to dependence, a call to be willing to walk in the strength that the Lord provides, not in your own strength. That is what I think it means to be a Christian. I want us to start with this idea of acknowledging your weakness. Acknowledging your weakness, the call to humility. You see, I want you to see the change that we see in Samson in this passage, from pride to humility, and say that it is a picture of the change that Christ wants to work in us. That we, as followers of Christ, should be marked by a distinctive humility, by a distinctive willingness to acknowledge our weakness. And that weakness, that willingness to acknowledge our weakness and to, to be honest about both the sin in our lives and the frailties and the limitations that we experience as human beings, that will make us look different in a city that is so often about exalting oneself, about celebrating oneself and In a sense, summoning up strength in yourself, the Christian will look different because they are willing and able to acknowledge their weakness. I said you can see the humility in Samson's prayer. Please strengthen me only this once. Remember me. You have every right to ignore me. You can even see it in Samson's willingness to die says, let me die with the Philistines. There's a sense when he says that, I think that almost like he recognises the wrong that he's done. He's penitent in the sense he recognises and says, almost I am only fit for death in this moment. He's willing to die for what he has done. The humility we see in Samson in this moment should mark us as those who follow Christ. John Stott, uh, one of, an evangelical pastor in, in London in, in, previous, in the last century, said this humility should be the defining mark of the Christian. He says the supreme quality which the evangelical faith engenders or should do is humility. And and yet, he goes on, evangelical people are often regarded as proud, vain, and arrogant. He says in one sense this should be how we should be known, People should look at us and say, there is a humble people there. And yet, so often, in the public perception of Christians and evangelical Christians, we appear as proud and vain and arrogant. And perhaps there's some kind of misconstruing or misunderstanding. But isn't that interesting? He says there's a disconnect between really what the gospel should lead us to be and how we actually are in practice. I want to say, if you look at the New Testament, you will see this expectation of humility. In fact, I would go further and say, you cannot become a Christian Until you recognize your weakness. And by that I mean you recognize your sin. Right back at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives a whole series of instructions or statements that that really describe what he describes as the blessed life or the kind of ideal life in one sense, the life that leads to flourishing. And he begins the number one statement to describe those who flourish. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for they will receive the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who recognize their poverty. And he's not talking about financial poverty. The poor in spirit. Those who recognize their weakness, their brokenness, their sin. And what he's saying is until you recognize your sin, until you recognize that you are not the man you want to be, let alone the man or woman that God intends you to be, You cannot receive the kingdom of heaven. To receive Christ is a great (laughs) jolt to the ego that exists within every single one of us, the desire to prove ourselves, to justify ourselves, and to make much of ourselves. The gospel requires us, as we come into the Christian life, to recognize that we have all sinned. And what's more, we are not the best person to be in charge of our life. That Christ is the rightful ruler. He's the one who should be kind of driving the car of your life, so to speak, and that you are not the best person. You cannot enter into the Christian life until you've recognised that reality. In fact, Jesus tells a story that is absolutely shocking, I think, to his original listeners, um, which displays the problem that pride is for one who would choose or be drawn towards following Jesus. And he tells a story of two men who enter a synagogue, and only one is... Justified, Only one is right with God, and it's not who you expect. So he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, for they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. You can just hear the pride in his voice as he lifts off all his religious credentials and then goes on. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And this is the sting in the tail. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That would have been shocking. Shocking to any religious audience. The man who does all the religious things right is not right with God, is not justified. And yet the one who comes in penitence and recognises the brokenness and the sin of his life, he is the one who is right with God. And, because, and why that's so significant is because, it, in a sense, it shows how different the Christian faith is to every other religious um, framework or, or, or vision of life in, 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 in culture. Because every other religion, and, and often maybe not religions, but kind of other philosophies of life, often are basically rel- moral improvement, p- moral performance improvement programs. Ways of you changing yourself and being a better person. But the christian faith doesn't start there it says no actually rather than these are the five steps in order to be a better person it says no recognize the very beginning that you are not the person you're meant to be and instead come to christ and receive the life that you're meant to find in him to become and to receive that life and then to become and to walk with him the man or woman that he intends you to be See, this humility is distinctive because it points to the central reality at the, at the heart of the Christian faith. The reason why we are called, why we are, for I should say, liberated to walk in a posture of humility, the reason why we are able to acknowledge our sin is because we have the grace of God. The reason why Christians look different, the reason why is they are able to acknowledge the mess and the brokenness and the deceitfulness of their own hearts is because they have encountered the grace of God. The very beginning, the central uh, truth at the heart of the Christian faith that just bears repeating every week, every time we gather, that God was willing to send his son to go to the cross, to be humiliated, and put, put naked, hung on a tree to die the death that you deserved, to take the punishment from the living God that you deserved, so that you can be forgiven, so you can be cleansed, so that you can have that declaration of righteousness, so that in a sense, you have nothing to prove before anyone because you have received the forgiveness and grace of God. And when you understand that, then you find a liberty and a freedom to be honest about the mess in your life because you've already received a grace from God. And this passage, this story of Samson is significant because I think in this moment, we see the grace of God. Despite the fact that Samson has been such an idiot for a number of chapters, spurning the call that God has placed onto his life, ignoring the counsel of others, denying the very essence of who he is, and giving in to sexual temptation and destroying himself in the process, you think, surely God, just, just collapse the temple on with him and be done with it. But that's not what happens. We see the grace of God in this moment. We see, as imagine Samson in his weakness and pitiful state, crying out to the living God. And if you were God, you wouldn't give him the grace. You say, you've just been an idiot, just go away. But that's not how God responds in this moment. He pours out his spirit on Samson. He responds to Samson's prayer. We are seeing the grace of God in this moment. It's shocking. One writer, one commentator on this passage said this this is almost most suitable for your very worst moments. I, I hate to say it, but in a room like this, From my experience as a pastor, I'm afraid to say, and this is not prophetic, but some of you will make a royal mess of your lives. Some of you will make some really bad decisions at some point that will really kind of smash to smithereens what you've been building. I've seen folk commit adultery on their spouse and destroy their marriage. I've seen folk uh, kind of work themselves into a place of of burnout and withdrawal from the church. I've seen... um, other folk kind of begin illicit relationships and, and, and slowly walk away and while there's no one kind of ignoring all the voices around them saying this is a bad idea. And say, so it's in your very worst moments that this passage, you need to remember this passage. As you see Samson at his worst, his most pitiful, hear the grace of God for you in that moment. Say, so you're not beyond the grace of God. This is what one writer said. And what of the Christian who stupidly and miserably fails, failed his Lord? Should he not find hope in seeing that cast down does not mean cast off? Should he not rejoice that he can call on Yahweh even in Dagon's temple? God meets him in the mess. Because God is faithful even when we are faithless. He cannot deny himself. We are seeing and being reminded of the grace of God. As I said, in, when we see and remember the grace that we've received, we cannot but be liberated from the temptation to present a facade and to cry and puff ourselves up. Instead, we can acknowledge the weakness and the sin of our lives with each other. And so humility should be a defining mark of the people of God. And yet so often we're like that described, how John Stott describes. Proud, vain, arrogant. Sometimes this even gets mixed in with our religious fervor. We've been talking about this call to religious devotion and sometimes you see that Christians take hold of that call to religious devotion but that too then becomes a kind of excuse, a way of justifying themselves. Like, I'm a Nazarite Christian. I've really kind of, I'm the real deal. All the Christians over there, they're just kind of lazy and they don't really go to prayer meetings but I'm, I'm really devoted. Such is the temptation of the human heart to take anything good and twist it into a kind of self-aggrandizement and a way of justifying ourselves. Actually, this sense of humility, this sense of recognizing your own weakness and sin, it's, it's actually something that you should see in increasing measure in the Christian life. It's not like you come in as someone who recognizes your sin and then you become a Christian and you think, oh yeah, I'm past that now, I've graduated from that. Actually, humility and a recognition of your own weakness is something that I would argue even should grow in the life of the Christian. Um, there's a man called John Newton who was... a a slave trader in the Atlantic, transatlantic slave trade, um, became a Christian, uh, wrote Amazing Grace, many of us sing and, and love, and, and he's got this wonderful book of letters where he, he's just very aware of his own brokenness as a Christian, years later into the Christian life. And, um, and this is where he writes to one friend. He says, Surely much of that hasty and censorious spirit too often observable in young converts... Basically, surely that pride that you often observe in in young believers arises from their having, as yet, a very imperfect acquaintance with the deceitfulness of their own hearts. So some of you have only just begun in the Christian life. You have yet only an imperfect acquaintance with the deceitfulness of your own heart. Your tendency to do the very things that you don't want to do. And as you continue on in the Christian life, and you are reminded again and again of some of the failings of your flesh... Actually, that's good for you. That's good for you because it makes you a much tender-hearted Christian towards others. He says, but the old, weather-beaten Christian who has learnt by sorrowful experience how weak he is in himself and what powerful, subtle enemies he has to grapple with acquires a tenderness in dealing with bruises and broken bones. As you recognise your own failings, as you recognize the fact that you do the very thing that you don't want to do again and again and again, ironically, that is in one sense for your good because that makes you a more compassionate brother or sister to the one who is struggling with you. I would argue that as we take hold of the gospel, as we understand both the depths of our own sin and the grace that we encounter in Christ, it should make us look radically different to the people around us because the posture and modus operandi of so many in this city is a posture of wanting to celebrate and lift up oneself, but we should look different. How do we look different? Well, actually, I think one of the ways we look different is our willingness to be honest about our failings with each other. See, there is a pride often in the pattern that we observe, often in those who would withdraw from the church when they are struggling. Folk who in the midst of, and some of you have maybe done this yourself, when things get hard, where do you go? Often we see folk withdrawing away from the church, not wanting to admit when things are difficult. Perhaps making bad choices and continuing on a path to self-destruction. Actually, the Christian should look different because of the grace we've received in Christ. It shouldn't surprise us that we struggle with sin and struggle with weakness. And it shouldn't then stop us from being honest about our struggles with each other. This should be the kind of community where it is normal for you to turn to a brother and sister and say, actually, I'm finding things really hard. Actually, this week is really difficult. Actually, I really see in myself a desire for something which I know isn't good, and I'm really struggling with that. That should be normal. But I know so many of you are not living in those kind of honest relationships where you're really talking about the struggles of your life. I know without the love and counsel of my wife and various brothers, some of whom are in this room, I am liable to make significant mistakes. And I think the same is true for you. So it is pride that stops us from being honest. Pride that stops us from moving towards each other and confessing our struggles. Second of all, there's pride often in our city in the pattern of overwork. I see this in myself. And I've been preparing a talk on this topic um, for Salt Live a couple of weeks ago and reflecting on the kind of weariness that we see in our city. I think so often the culture of overdoing it, of working beyond the limits that God gives us, of not taking a Sabbath rest and of of working all hours that God gives actually comes from a surprising place. It comes from a place of pride. It comes from kind of believing that you're a superhuman and that you can go beyond the limits that God gives us and still flourish in the process. Actually, Christians should look different as a response to the fact that we know that we are but dust, that we live within the boundaries that God has given us, that we cannot just work, work, work and continue to flourish, that we need to live with a Sabbath rest, a time every week to reset, reset restore our relationship with God, to recalibrate. And we do that as a posture of humility. So we look different in our propensity and willingness to rest. And the third way i would, suggest we look different is we are no longer obsessed with ourselves. This city, the culture so often in our working environments, encourages a self-obsession. As you are constantly evaluated by the people around you, you're encouraged to evaluate yourself, all sorts of technological tools where you can track the number of hours you work, the number of steps you take, and fill in the blank. There is a constant obsession with the self and a performance mindset. How am I doing? How am I performing? Actually, the Christian should look different because they're no, they're no longer obsessed or focused on their own performance. Why? Because they are liberated from being the judge of their own lives or being um, succumbing to the judgment of others. Because real humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That's C.S. Lewis. <laughs> not me. <laughs> just to want to be clear. Real humility is not thinking of yourself less, it's just not thinking of yourself. Thinking of yourself. I've completely butchered that, but you got it the first time. So we'll leave it just to C.S. Lewis. My point is the Christian is, is, is marked by a different pattern. In a world where we're so often likely to judge ourselves and to judge each other, the Christian says, I'm not going to listen to the judgment of others or even my own judgment. I'm going to listen only to the judgment of God. And that is a liberating reality. That stops me obsessing about myself and my performance. And I look different as a result. Paul describes this um, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians. And one writer described this as the freedom of self-forgetfulness. He says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, I will only live for the judgment of the Lord. I will not live for the judgment of others, and I will not even judge myself. I will only live what He thinks. And that is liberating, because He comes with grace. So, we acknowledge our weakness. That's what makes us look distinctive. But it's not enough just to acknowledge our weakness, we have to trust in God's strength for our weakness. It's not just that you are one who understands your weakness but that you cling for, to Christ for his strength. You see, this passage, this moment in Samson's life is almost more about the strength of God than it is about the weakness of Samson. You see this moment. We see this pitiful figure weakening himself. But what do we see? We see the great, mighty judgment of the living God on this temple of Dagon. Just think about the scale of the temple in this scene. It's described as as being big enough for 3,000 men and women to stand on the roof. Now this room could probably have 300 people standing, so it's far bigger than this room. It's some massive architectural grandeur dedicated to the god Dagon. You can imagine, this is over 3,000 years ago. So you can only imagine this must be one of the most prominent buildings in the Philistine people and culture. And they are just celebrating Dagon's success. But it's not Dagon's success. It was Samson who threw it all away. But the living God will not let them think or believe that this is somehow a victory for Dagon. He is absolutely clear that they must see that he is superior to Dagon. That he is the God above gods because none of these other gods are real. And only he is the living God. He will tolerate no other idols So in this moment, he enacts judgment on a people who are worshipping a false god and oppressing the people of God. And crucially, just as we see God's supreme power in this moment, we see that Samson trusts in that power. In Hebrews 11, again, it describes these list of heroes as who, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. We see Samson's faith in this moment as he trusts God that he will despite his weakness, destroy the temple. So the question is, do you trust God for his strength for us? Do you trust God for his strength for your weakness? That is the question this passage would ask. So when we talk about our weakness, we've talked about sin, but we also talk about our limitations, our tendency towards anxiety, or perhaps that sense of weariness that means you think, I just don't have the energy that I wish I had. Or a struggle to have mastery over yourself. You feel distracted or you're wasting time. Or perhaps you just see a, a lack of self-control in yourself. So often we see weakness in ourself and we are frustrated by it. Perhaps we even despise it. We try and change it and we try and resolve it. And there are whole books and catalogues of things people do to try and have mastery over themselves. And to work on their weaknesses and their limitations. But this passage says loudly and clearly, where will you run in your weaknesses? To the strength of the living God. That is the answer. That is the ultimate antidote to the posture and reality of weakness in your life. It is there so that you might walk in dependence on the living God. It would be easy to despair when we see the weakness within ourselves, but instead we have to ask ourselves, do we need a bigger vision of the living God and his strength To work in your weakness. And actually you see this throughout scripture, this promise of God's strength. I think about um, Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 3. And he prays for them that they might be rooted in the love of God, but crucially that they might have strength to understand the love of God. Says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, through whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. I'm praying for you that you might be strengthened, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And then he says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. In a sense, he's already assuming that the living God can do far more in you than you ask or think. In a sense, he's expecting that your expectations of God are too low. It says, where where do we see this kind of low expectation? Where do we see this lack of conviction in the strength of God? We see it in our prayerlessness. See, if you really believe that God is strong, if you really believe that he is the source of strength in your life to enable you to endure, to overcome the different weaknesses that you see in yourself, to enable you to hold fast to Christ, it will be reflected in your prayer life. Every time we pray, we are expressing our weakness to God. We are expressing the sense that he is the one who can sustain us, that he is the one who has the power to change us, to change our hearts, to change our desires, that he alone sees the deceitfulness of our hearts, the way that we do the very things that we don't want to do, the way we don't always see the reality of our hearts. He alone sees the reality of your heart and has the power to change your heart. He alone is the one who has the power to give you a deep sense of the love of God. The sense of the love of God that you need as a Christian, that sustains you in your walk with him, that enables you to keep on going through trials, you'll be sustained by a deep sense of the love of God. And how do we receive that? Except by the work of the Spirit. This is why I'm so passionate about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian, because I pray that you'd be rooted and grounded in this love that you would be deeply aware of your sonship, that you are a child of God, that the living God sent his son to die for you so that you might be adopted and that you have a perfect father, that it is through you will go through all sorts of hardship and troubles in this life. There will be many different things that are hard about the Christian life, but what will sustain you is a deep sense of the love of God, a deep sense of your sonship, whether you're a man or a woman, that you have the place of sonship, it kind of means that it's a place of special honour, dignity in in the household of God, that you are his. And the way you will receive that, you'll receive it through reading scripture, but you will also receive it through the work of the Spirit. Where will you run in your weakness? Where will you run when you despair of yourself? Will you run into the hands of the living God? you go to him and say, God, I am weak and I need you. This prayer that we see in Samson, as, which we see him praying in this passage, oh Lord, strengthen me. I believe that is in a sense, oh Lord, remember me and strengthen your servant. In a sense, that should be the kind of underlying prayer of the Christian life. As you go through trial after trial, it is not wrong. It's not a sign that you're failing, that you're regularly saying, oh Lord, strengthen me. Oh Lord, strengthen me as people at work frustrate you and everything feels difficult and you just want to kind of punch one of them in the head I'm not speaking from personal experience here too much, Zach, I love you um, <laughs> um I've never really wanted to punch Zach in the head I can promise you that much he's a delightful colleague um, when, you're, when you're in the moment of deep frustration where will you run? will you try and summon up the human resolve to be a better version of yourself or will you say, God, I'm angry God, I need you God, would you change my heart? That is far, far better course of action. When life feels overwhelming and you, feel, and you just want to escape and you want to run away and you're tempted to turn on Netflix and try and just drown out the problems, it's far better that in that moment you say, God, I am weak, I feel overwhelmed, and I need you. It doesn't feel, it doesn't feel like rocket science, and yet so often we ignore that. So often we run to all sorts of other ways of distracting ourselves from our weakness. From distracting ourselves from the fact that we cannot control the universe and, we, and the life's problems feel more than we can bear. But instead we have been taught again and again where should we go but run to the Heavenly Father who cares for you. He is the one who you move towards in his strength in your weakness. You hear this great call to devotion We've been talking about it and we say, how can we become the devoted people of God? Is it by summoning up some kind of devotion within ourselves? Or is it by remembering that Jesus Christ is described in Hebrews chapter 12 as the founder and perfecter of your faith? That we run to him and say, God, would you make us a devoted people? As we gather in upper room, as we gather in pre-service prayer each week, we are coming to him saying, God, we cannot do this on our own. In a sense that this service, this this Sunday by Sunday, is not a human exercise in kind of someone preparing a talk and someone preparing some songs. We are saying, living God, would you come and move amongst us? Would you make us a hungry people? Would you change our hearts? Would you give us a a collective sense of our dependence on you? This is all a work that requires him and not just human beings. So come and join us at pre-service prayer. Every week, it's such a delight and a privilege to be with brothers and sisters who are crying out saying, God, we need you. Come and join us up Upper Room on Wednesday night as we together, as the people of God, express our collective dependence on him. Saying, God, would you come and work in us? Put this all together and it says, what God is looking for is a dependent people. A people marked by dependence. You see, dependence is something that you might think we graduate from. And if you're a parent and you have children, you're hoping one day that those children are no longer dependent on you. At least by 25, you, know, you hope that they're not financially dependent on you in some way. But that's different in the Christian life. In the Christian life, we don't grow away from dependence. We grow into greater sense of dependence. As you go on in the Christian life, you feel more dependent on the living God rather than less. You feel more aware of your sin. Think about how Paul describes himself as chief of sinners in one of his last letters, In his letter to Timothy, he's so aware of his own sin. He's so aware of his own weakness. In the beginning of um, his letter to the Corinthians, he describes his awareness of his weakness. Actually, we'll do it at the end of the letter instead. He describes a thorn in the flesh. Describes a struggle in his life in some way. We don't know. Is it temptation? Is it a a kind of a sense of weakness, some struggle? He says. So to to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, he's experienced some revelation from God, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Brothers and sisters, when you are at the end of yourself, and you feel weak, and you feel defeated by your temptations, and you feel like the Christian life feels too hard, remember those words. My power is perfected in your weakness. In a sense, your weakness is actually a gift, because it forces you to move towards God. That God in some way works in your weaknesses to glorify himself even more. Some of you struggle with anxiety. You say, I wish I didn't struggle with anxiety. You despise it. I want to suggest that actually sometimes a struggle with anxiety is a great gift because you are aware of the problems of life. And where will you run when you feel that experience of anxiety except into the arms of your father who cares for you? That your weakness is a gift because it forces you to depend on God. It forces you to go to God and say, I need you. And that is a great place to be as a Christian. Aware, deeply aware, Of your dependence on God. So we walk forward as dependent people. But the final thought I want to leave you with is those who resemble, those who take hold, who acknowledge their weakness, who receive strength from the Lord, will actually be marked by a willingness to become weak for the sake of the mission of God. You see, in this picture, we see Samson, but we also see Christ. You see Samson is humiliated before a crowd. You're very familiar probably with the gospel accounts that describe Jesus being humiliated before the soldiers and the crowd as they mock him and spit at him and jeer at him. We see Samson being killed ultimately, but in his death, he is victorious. So too, we know Christ suffers a humiliating death, but in his death, he is victorious over the power of sin and death And Satan, that he conquers that great enemy of death through his own death and resurrection such that we need not fear death anymore, those (laughs) who put our faith in Christ. We see Samson, but we see Jesus. But what's fascinating is there's one big difference between Samson and Jesus, apart from the fact that Samson's an idiot, and that is (laughs) that Jesus willingly makes himself weak. Samson is made weak because he has had the dalliance with Delilah and denied himself. But Jesus makes himself weak. He makes himself weak. Why? So that he might die and give himself for us. His weakness, his self imposed weakness, is out of love. You see this in Philippians chapter 2. I think this is one of the most beautiful verses in Scripture. So the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you see that? He became a servant. He was born in the likeness of men. The one who the world was made through him emptied himself. He became weak. He was humiliated on the cross for our sake. And to, he, set, he doesn't just do that for us. He sets a pattern for us that our whole lives are meant to in some way resemble Jesus' willingness to give of himself. That the Christian life is one whole choice to pour yourself out, to become weak, to become a servant like Christ in serving those around you, in displaying the love of Christ to the people around you, in giving of yourself to God's purposes, and in doing so, you image the great suffering servant who made himself weak on our behalf. We know how the story ends, don't we? Christ is the one who has the victory. We will one day see him riding forth in his great strength and majesty. And we too will join with him and we'll live, for him. we'll live with him for eternity. But until then, we pour ourselves out. We make ourselves weak. We give ourselves away time and again to each other as an act of love because we're family together. But beyond that, we give ourselves away to the people around us. We serve and love the people around us. Why? Because we are displaying the great love of Christ that has come to dwell in our hearts. And this makes us look radically different to the people around us. Are you willing to make yourself weak? And perhaps you think, I'd rather not. (laughs) I'd really rather not. I'd rather just be strong and just be successful like like all the people around me (laughs) in this city. How will you do it? I think you'll do it in two ways. You'll look at Christ and see the beauty of Christ, his willingness to make himself weak, to lay down his life for us. And you'll do it as you take hold of his love for the people around you, as you take hold of his love for the church here and for beyond, the people you work with, the people you live next door to, and say, Christ loves them. He was willing to give himself for them. And so you too can live a posture of serving and giving yourself away, of loving them, and of even speaking of the love of Christ with them as a testimony to the one who came in love to make himself weak on our behalf.